Hello, my name is Daniel Ford. I'm the producer and presenter of Pay-Per-View, a podcast analysing news and current events. In this video, following on from my previous video, Paper Talk, I'm going to show how viruses are claimed to exist, which is known as the culture method. More often than not, this is the method used this has been a standard method since the 1950s and show why it's fundamentally flawed. In paper talk I analyse scientific papers claiming isolation of SARS-CoV-2, the virus they claim causes COVID-19 and explained why those papers don't describe isolation and if you don't isolate a virus, you can't prove it exists, you can't prove it causes disease, you can't photograph it, you can't sequence it, you can't test for it. If you don't isolate the virus, everything else that follows is flawed. So just a bit of history on the culture method. These three won the Nobel Prize in 1954 for being instrumental in the discovery or the perfection of this method, especially John Franklin Enders. And it says here, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded jointly to John Franklin Enders, Thomas Huckleweller and Frederick Chapman Robbins for their discovery of the ability of poliomyelitis viruses to grow in cultures of various types of tissue. So this is the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information website. And it says, role of cell culture for virus detection in the age of technology. Viral disease diagnosis has traditionally relied on the isolation of viral pathogens in cell cultures. Although this approach is often slow and requires considerable technical expertise, it has been regarded for decades as the gold standard for the laboratory diagnosis of viral disease. This is from the Laboratory Diagnosis of Infectious Disease Principles and Practice virus isolation and identification. Cultures of cell lines are the host of choice of virus isolation. Quality cell cultures are available commercially and are conveniently maintained in the laboratory. After proper decontamination and purification, its clinical sample is inoculated into several types of cell cultures that fertilize vary from virus to virus. Now, what is supposed to happen is the virus is isolated using the method I described in the previous video and then it's inoculated onto cells in the cell culture but what happens is they take a body sample let's say snot from a sick person or lung fluid if it's a respiratory illness or they suspect they've got a respiratory illness as in a virus as opposed to causing something else and they inoculate that onto cells there's no isolation of a virus. This is a feature of this page in the previous video. The Journal of Royal College of Pathologists Australasia. And it says here, virus culture has been regarded as the reference standard of diagnostics for decades as it allows for identification and isolation of active replicating virus. But the way the cell culture technique is carried out it's not isolation because isolation means 
separation from other material. But what they do in the cell culture method is mix with a load of other material. And what they're looking for is a cytopathic effect. This is Encyclopedia Botanica, microbiology cytopathic effect. And what that means is what is claimed to be the effect of the virus on the cells. Cytopathic effect, structural changes in a host cell resulting from viral infection. CPE occurs when the infecting virus causes lysis dissolution of the host cell or when the cell dies without lysis because of its inability to reproduce. But if you've not isolated the virus in the first place, how do you know what's caused the cytopathic effect? How do you know the virus is even there? And I'll get to what causes the cytopathic effect as we go along. So this is a very significant paper from 1954, Propagation of Tissue Cultures of Cytopathic and Cytopathogenic Agents from Patients with Measles, John F. Enders and Thomas C. Peebles. So, what did it say? Since 1943, when the last of the communications by Rake and his collaborators appeared, no important progress has been made in the study of the etiology, that means cause, of measles. This fact may in large part be attributed to the lack of a convenient laboratory method for the demonstration of the presence of the agent which induced no recognisable changes in eggs or cultures of chick tissues. Moreover, repeated attempts by Shafford to demonstrate a serologic reaction, such as complement fixation using materials from the affected chick embryo failed. Accordingly, the only available techniques have consisted in the inoculation of man or the monkey. The former is obviously impractical as routine, and the latter tedious, expensive, and frequently inconclusive because of variation in individual susceptibility. So what they're saying is, when they were trying to demonstrate the presence of the cytopath cytopathogenic agent, which they claim is caused by measles, before the cell culture method, they basically came up with nothing. With these considerations in mind, we have recently attempted to cultivate the agent of measles in cultures of human and monkey cells, employing procedures applied successfully to the propagation of the poliomyelitis viruses. So this is the same technique that was used to discover polio. In blood and throat washings of typical cases of measles agents have been demonstrated that could be maintained in serial passage in tissue cultures in which induce distinctive cytopathic changes in renal epithelial cells. That's lung cells. Throat washings, venous blood and feces were obtained from several patients as early as possible after a clinical diagnosis of measles was established. After addition of antibiotics I'll get to that in a minute. After swabbing the throat, the swab was immersed in 2 milliliters of milk Penicillin and streptomycin were added to all throat specimens. After addition of antibiotics, as described above, 10% fecal suspension was prepared by grinding the material in bovine amniotic fluid medium. That's referred to in scientific papers nowadays as fetal bovine serum. The culture medium consisted of bovine amniotic fluid, beef embryo extract, horse serum, antibiotics, and phenol red. Now, part of the process of identifying a virus is to find a particle with 
genetic material but with bovine amniotic fluid there's genetic material there there's genetic material in milk because it comes from an animal there's genetic material in beef embryo extract horse serum so there's this mixture of genetic material in the culture And then it's talking about cytopathic changes here. Since these changes presented a characteristic appearance, not heretofore associated definitely with the virus, they have provided the means for the further investigation of this agent as well as others that have been recently isolated. So the changes they observed have not been associated with the virus previously at that time. monkey kidney is the only other tissue employed that has yielded a growth of cells in which the characteristic changes described above have been definitely observed following inoculation of virus. In so doing, however, it must be borne in mind that cytopathic effects which superficially resemble those resulting from infection by the measles agents may possibly be induced by other viral agents present in the monkey kidney tissue. other viral agents but that's the point if you're making a cell culture mixture without isolating a virus first you don't know what's doing what in a single experiment no cytopathic manifestations were seen during a period of 31 days following the inoculation of infected tissue culture fluid into cultures of human embryonic skin and muscle human uterine tissue Of the numerous experiments that have been reported in the past describing the successful isolation of the causal agent of measles, only those in which monkeys were employed as the experimental animal have been consistently confirmed by other workers. So they've tried other cell lines, but they've not produced any effects or results. Pathologic changes induced by the agents in epithelial cells in tissue culture resemble at least superficially those found in certain tissues during the acute stage of measles. So they resemble effects on certain types of tissue in tissue cultures. While there is no ground for concluding that the factors in vivo are the same as those which underlie the formation of giant cells in the nuclear disturbances in vitro, in vivo means in a living host, in vitro means in a laboratory, in a cell culture, the appearance of these phenomena in culture cells is consistent with the properties that a priori might be associated with the virus of measles. Now that's the most stunning statement of all because what that means is what is being stated there. And bear in mind, John Enders was involved with this paper. What he's saying is there's no ground for concluding that what happens in the cell culture is the same as what would happen in the body. And if you don't isolate the virus to start with, how can that not be the case? The findings just summarised support the presumption that this group of agents is composed of representatives of the viral species responsible for measles. Support the presumption. Science is full of assumptions and presumptions. 
in various different disciplines which only become accepted fact because of repetition. Eight agents exhibiting the properties of virus have been isolated in cultures of human or similar renal cells from the blood or throat washings of five cases of typical measles. Multiplication of the agents in vitro is accompanied by characteristic changes in the cells. When they say the virus has been isolated, they use that in that term in relation to culture method, even though the culture method relies on mixing with other material. For some reason they call that isolation. And this is a follow-up paper. Measles virus is a summary of a summary of experiments concerned with isolation properties and behaviour from nineteen fifty seven. And this is an interesting part of it. Presented here is a clarifying summarization of the many studies upon which any forthcoming advances in measles prophylaxis will be based. Study of the causal agent of measles began with home at the end of the 18th century and is being continued intermittently until the present. Among the more significant contributions to this subject in modern times was the demonstration by Goldberg and Anderson in 1911 that macaque monkeys are susceptible to infection. I should just say, by the way, in the first video, Paper Talk, when I was going through that series of scientific papers, the cell culture method was used in all of them. This is the same method they've used for that and for other viruses throughout history. That's why I'm focusing on it now. This observation was later confirmed and extended by Blake and Trask, among others. During the course of those earlier studies, evidence for the filterable nature of the agent was obtained. Using the monkey to test for the presence of virus plots in the 1930s reported its successful cultivation in cultures of chick embryonic tissues. That's what they used to try to culture material before viruses. But if you remember in the previous paper, they said that their experimentation had not been successful in chick embryonic tissues in the same way that it was with cell culture. In 1939 to 1940, Rake and Shafford described this serial propagation of the agent in chick embryos. In 1941, with Jones confirmed Plotz's observations in the same year, Shafford and his associates also noted that during the course of passages in chick embryo, the virulence in the virus from man was reduced and they attempted to determine whether this attenuated virus might be employed as a vaccine. This was very significant in the vaccine history timeline, if you like, because this cell culture method is used to develop vaccines. They take fluid from the liquid from the cell culture and with all this material in and they mix that with adjuvants and preservatives and that's a, a live virus vaccine or an inactivated virus vaccine as it may be or attenuated but the, whichever one it is that's the method employed the results were inconclusive and since that time we have seen no account of further charge with such materials although it is our understanding that similar experiments are now in progress within the Soviet Union. Other workers in the past, including one of us, were not able to induce measles in the monkey with regularity and also failed to obtain convincing evidence that the virus multiplied in living chick embryos or in chick embryonic tissues cultivated 
in a laboratory. Such experimental discrepancies as well as the failure to make more rapid progress toward the precise definition of the nature and properties of the measles agent were largely attributable to the lack of a convenient and inexpensive technique whereby viral multiplication could be unequivocally determined. Following the demonstration of the growth and cytopathogenic effect of poliomyelitis virus in cultures, which is what they won the Nobel Prize for, in a culture of extraneural human tissues, it seemed likely that a application of the same method might prove effective in a case of measles virus. So that was what inspired the attempt to culture measles virus. What they claim was the success using the same technique for polio. Isolation of measles virus in tissue culture. Accordingly, Enders and Peebles in 1954 undertook experiments in which cultures of human postnatal tissues and roller tube cultures were exposed to whole blood and throat washings obtained from a patient with measles during the first 24 hours of the exam. After an interval of from 4 to 10 days, abnormal changes were observed of a character that we shall presently describe and which was shown to be induced by a virus. But how were they shown to be induced by a virus? Comparable materials from seven other typical cases of measles subsequently tested in cultures of human renal and monkey rhesus renal cells and yielded agents exhibiting the same cytopathogenic properties. By the way, the cell type they use most often is Vero cells, especially Vero E6, which are monkey kidney cells. In three of these cases, virus was demonstrated in both blood and throat washings. In two, the blood was positive and washings were negative. In each of the two remaining cases in which only blood or throat washings was tested, virus was also found. In addition, an agent was recovered in tissue culture from the lung of a patient dying during the acute stage of measles. It was indistinguishable from the others. It is to be emphasised that these nine viruses were isolated from cases occurring in different geographic areas at two different times in the spring of 1954-1955. The association with measles and viruses conforming in their characteristics with those who have isolated has subsequently been reported by Cohen and his co-workers and by Ruckel. with those we have isolated but isolated using what method? that's the question Ruckel has lately reported similar findings and in addition has isolated an agent from monkey kidney tissue that so far is indistinguishable from human measles virus. The problem, however, of the origin of the agent responsible for the presence of these antibodies, that was the similar findings that Ruckel has reported in relation to antibodies, in apparently normal monkeys has not yet been solved. So what they're saying is we've got an antibody response we think it might be caused by the measles virus, but we don't know. But an agent has been isolated from monkey kidney tissue, indistinguishable from human measles virus. But where did the human measles virus, as they're calling it, come from? How is that isolated? This is the thing. If you don't isolate the virus to start with, this is the problem you have. 
We are inclined to believe, for reasons that have been discussed elsewhere at length, that it is probably identical with human measles virus. And there's another statement coming up, which is very relevant to where I'm going to go next. Well, two statements. It also seems that groundwork has been established for future studies directed toward the development of vaccines, whether composed of attenuated or inactive virus. In our opinion, virus grown under these conditions or in cultures of chick tissue would represent the most suitable material for the preparation of vaccine. There is a potential risk in employing cultures of primate cells for the production of vaccines composed of attenuated virus, since the presence of other agents, possibly latent in primate tissues, cannot be definitely excluded by any known method. Now, it's important to remember that statement. What happens is... When you, and this is what they do, when you inoculate like a body sample, snot or lung fluid or bronchoalveolar lavage, as they call it, fluid, into the culture, that's the body sample which you claim has a virus in, but you've not isolated it, properly isolated it, and then you add antibiotics, especially antibiotics which are toxic to the type of cells you're using. So if you're using monkey kidney cells, which they often do, and you use nephrotoxic drugs like, in other words, toxic to kidneys like gentamicin and amphotericin, which are used a lot nowadays, then, and you starve the cells by giving them what's known as minimal essential medium and people who watched the first video paper talk will see that that was mentioned and that was what they did in the methods time and time again then the culture will break down and these particles will be released and the tissue will break down into particles and those particles will be claimed to be the virus and the effects on the tissue on the cells will be claimed to be caused by the virus but a the virus was not isolated before being inoculated onto the cells tissue in the culture because the culture method is itself claimed to be isolation bizarrely and so you don't even know the virus is in there in the first place and or a, a virus and why is it the virus that's caused the cytopathic effects to the cells and the tissue and not the way the tissue has been treated with the material that's in the culture which would cause it to break down and that brings me on to this. This is the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology. That's kidneys. Caution in identifying coronaviruses by electron microscopy. What they do is they see these particles and they zoom in using an electron microscope. They under the microscope they see these particles and they claim they're 
the virus. So this is what it says. We are concerned about the erroneous identification of coronavirus directly in tissues by authors using electron microscopy. This was published in September 2020. Several recent articles have been published that purport to have identified SARS-CoV-2 directly in tissue. Most describe particles that resemble but do not have the appearance of coronavirus. Then it goes into the appearance difference of what they claim as coronaviruses. But how were they discovered? Then the article by Farkash et al. The electron microscopic images do not demonstrate coronaviruses. Rather, the structures described as virus are clathrin-coated vesicles. And um, clathrin-coated vesicles are round and they've got thing, like, things sticking out of them, like spikes. And, you know, they can be confused with virus particles. I'll show you some other images in a minute of these vesicles. Clathin-coated vesicles, normal subcellular organelles involved in intracellular transport. They're part of the, the body. They're a response, if you like, of the body. They're not viruses at all. Additionally, Farkas et al. document their findings by referring to an article by Sirwatau that reports to have identified coronavirus in kidney. Likewise, that article shows only normal structures that to the non-electron microscopist virologist may resemble coronavirus. Their interpretation has been refuted in letters to the editor of Kidney International. Identification of viruses is not always straight. Identification of viruses is not always straightforward. Consideration should be given to the mechanism of virus production including the location inside of cells, as well as the appearance. Care should be taken to prevent mistaken cell organelles for viral particles. Another form of these particles and vesicles that are seen in cultures are exosomes. They're probably the most well-known. And there's some debate about what exosomes are actually there for. Some claim they're for in intracellular communication, some claim they are communicating with other cells. Some claim they are there to uh, basically collect up toxins and poisonous material so they can be removed from the body. And they collect them up in these little packages, these little round kind of packages that are seen as viruses. So these are these vesicles, clathrin-coated vesicles, here. Now these might be um, copy-coated vesicles, these are very similar. You can see round and you've got these spikes. So this is an article in The Lancet, of course, very respected scientific journal. Why misinterpretations of electron micrographs in SARS-CoV-2 infected tissue goes viral. With interest, we follow the publications that show the presence of putative, that means suspected, SARS-CoV-2 by electron microscopy in patient tissues, and the debate about these results which should have sufficiently raised attention to their correct interpretation. Nevertheless, ultra-structural details in autopsy tissues have been misinterpreted as coronavirus particles in recent papers. Bradley and colleagues described coronavirus-like particles in autopsy specimens of the respiratory system, kidney and gastrointestinal tract. 
And in a case report, Dolkanov and colleagues described viral particles in different cell types of cardiac tissue of a deceased child. However, the images in these publications showed suspected viral particles that lack sufficient ultrastructure for an, an unambiguous identification as virus. Some of these particles definitely represent other cellular structures, such as rough endoplasmic reticulum. Moreover, it is remarkable that Dolkanov and colleagues referred to findings described by Tavazi and colleagues of viral particles in interstitial cells, which are clearly non-viral structures, such as coated vesicles. Furthermore, Bradley and colleagues quoted publications as a reference for their virus particle identification, which in our opinion both identified non-coronavirus structures as coronavirus particles. Electron microscopy is complementary to other techniques used for studying diseases and it continues to be a valuable tool in certain diagnostic fields. In studies of infectious diseases, electron microscopy is considered the gold standard to prove the presence of an infectious unit. But how does that work unless you isolate the agent first of all? In the case of COVID-19 diagnosis, the presence of SARS-CoV-2 particles complements the molecular traces of SARS-CoV-2-specific proteins or nucleic acids. I'm going to get into the genetic sequencing and the viral genome viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, in the next video, because that informs the testing as well. Furthermore, electron microscopy allows the exact localization of viruses in tissues and within cells. This in turn allows target cells of virus infection to be specified and informs about the reproduction of the virus. As diagnostic electron microscopy requires both specialised staff and expensive equipment and has been replaced by other methods in several fields of application, its use has been in decline in the past decade, resulting in irreversible loss of expertise that now becomes, that now becomes dramatically overt during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. This dilemma of diagnostic electron microscopy should alarm us all, as misleading information on the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in tissue has already made its way into the scientific literature and seems to be perpetuated. So this is a paper from May 2020, this is interesting, in a journal called Viruses. This is on the US National Library of Medicine, National Institute of Health website. This is called The Role of Extracellular Vesicles as Allies of HIV, HCV and SARS Viruses. Extracellular vesicles resemble enveloped viruses in both structural and functional aspects. In full analogy with viral biogenesis, some of these vesicles are generated inside cells and once released into the extracellular milieu are called exosomes. Others bred from the plasma membrane and are generally referred to as microvesicles. Remember that statement? In the 1957 paper, there is a potential risk in employing cultures of primate cells for the production of vaccines composed of attenuated virus, since the presence of other agents, possibly latent in primate tissues, cannot be definitely excluded by any known method. Basically, they can't distinguish between one or the other. In the sense that there could be other agents there. So, it could cause a problem. Regarding nucleic acids, DNA fragments, DNA fragments, single and double-stranded DNAs, mitochondrial DNA and RNA species, such as mRNAs, mitochondrial RNAs, and a great variety of small non-coding RNAs, have been detected in extracellular vesicles. Genetic material, which is what they say viruses contain. In recent decades, the similarity between extracellular vesicles and virus particles has become increasingly evident. Viruses and extracellular vesicles share different aspects such as size and various others. 
by catching cellular vesicles, viruses present a size range from 30 to 1,000 nanometers, starting from the small ones such as poliovirus and hepatitis A virus particles, which possess a diameter of about 30 nanometers, all the way to hepatitis C virus of about 50 nanometers, and HIV or SARS viruses that are about 100 to 120 nanometers. And it goes into some of the various similarities there. The remarkable resemblance between extracellular vesicles and viruses has caused quite a few problems in the studies focused on the analysis of extracellular vesicles released during viral infections. Nowadays, it is an almost impossible mission to separate EVs and viruses. And there's one or two other interesting statements, but I'll finish on this one. However, today, a reliable method that can actually guarantee a complete separation does not exist. So, this statement in 1957... And you think all this time later they would be able to tell the difference. All the way through to this statement in May 2020, they still can't tell the difference. So when you see images like this, of these particles, that are claimed to be a virus or the virus, cell culture, tissue culture, breakdown products. That's what they are. That's where they come from. They're all culture images. So, what we've got with the cell culture method is a method whereby they claim, without isolation of the virus, first of all, the existence of the virus, the proof of the virus causing harm to the cells, of, to create vaccines for the virus, to photograph the virus, and to identify genetic material for the virus. And it's all based on a fundamental flaw without isolation. So I hope you found that informative, hope that has helped you to understand more of this fraud called virology. Stay tuned for the next video where I'll be talking about the sequencing and genetics of viruses and how they claim to be identified and the testing. Thank you for watching.